Check one, two, check. Educational career in seminary. Oh, on now. All right. I know some of these years. <laughs> there we go. Is that better? No different. Is this on? Yes, it is. I have confidence in your abilities, Jordan. Okay. A little better? All right. If I am not coming through to you, let me know. And I'll use my outdoor voice. But when I was starting at seminary, the various professors from each of the departments in the seminary spoke to us about how important theology was, or how important church history was, or how important pastoral care was, and how we had to be sure when it came time for us to have some, uh, some electives that we took those electives in their area, which was the most important. Then Bernard Word Anderson stood up. Bernard Word Anderson, ah, here are my glasses. I play that game with my class all the time. What did Dr. Toole do with his glasses? <laughs> Dr. Bernard Ward Anderson stood up. He was professor of Old Testament at Princeton. He brought his Bible with him. And he said, this is the new Testament. This is the Old Testament. And then he sat down. <laughs> that really is all we need to say. The bulk of Christian scripture is found south of Matthew. The bulk of Christian scripture is on the left hand side of our Bibles. When Jesus quotes from Scripture, or when Paul quotes from Scripture, they're referring to the texts of the Psalms, the prophets, the writings on the left-hand side of our Bible, the Hebrew Bible. Some things that we take for granted really cannot fully be understood without an awareness of that deep past. Uh, for example, Jesus' first followers called him Christos, Christ, which is really rather strange because what Christos means in Greek is smeared. They called him the smeared one, Christos. They did that because the word Christos, Christ, was used in the Greek translation of Jewish scripture to translate the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. 
we might say. Now, Messiah means anointed one. Anointed one, someone anointed with oil, which in Israel's context and culture meant someone or something set apart for a special purpose when the tabernacle was built as the various aspects of the tabernacle structure were brought into use, they were anointed with oil. When a priest was consecrated, the priest was anointed with oil. So that that, that title, Mashiach, anointed one, smeared one, could refer to a priest. But in Israel, it particularly was used for kings. Because when you became king, you were anointed with oil. And the notion of the king as the anointed one became very important, particularly, curiously, in the years after the end of kingship. When the people of Israel were wondering what was going to come next. What is God's plan? What is God's purpose for us now? And expectations began to point toward one who would come. A Messiah, a Mashiach, Christos, smeared one. Jesus' friends used this title for him because they saw in Jesus that long-expected one, the one who was to come. They used that title even though there was absolutely nothing royal about Jesus. Jesus was born to a poor family and desperately poor circumstances. And it became clear in Jesus' teaching that what it meant for him to be anointed by God did not mean claiming power or privilege or greatness or kingship, not not the way they had understood those ideas. So just the word Christ, when we say Jesus Christ, we're drawing on an ancient and deep tradition that we may not altogether understand if we haven't dipped into that left-hand side of the Bible. Now, I know why we don't like to go there. I've talked to lots of folks over the years about why the left-hand side of the Bible, the Old Testament, seems difficult or inhospitable, hard to read. I'm going to share with you this morning three things, three reasons that I've heard for people not wanting to go to this material. And I'm going to try to respond to all three. See if you can hear one that sounds familiar. One reason for not wanting to go to the Old Testament is that the Old Testament God is wrathful and violent. God is a God of love in the New Testament. God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament. 
heard a story about a little girl coming home from Sunday school where they'd been looking at Joshua, the book of Joshua, and her parents asked her, well, you know, there, there are some really awful stories there, really violent and bloody stories. She said, well, yeah, but that was before God became a Christian. <laughs> we had this idea, don't we, that, that, that somehow something happens to God between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew, that God finds religion. But I want to suggest, first of all, that no... First of all, there is plenty of love and grace on the left-hand side of the Bible. In the book of Hosea, if you have a Bible and you'd like to go there with me, Hosea comes right after Daniel in our Old Testament the first of that collection of short prophetic books that uh, Jordan studied with me at seminary, uh, the book of the Twelve. We sometimes call these the minor prophets. comes from Augustine, an early Christian teacher who distinguished between the major prophets who write long books and the minor prophets who write short books, for him it was just a distinction of length, and, and that's it, not a distinction of significance or importance. But, uh, of course, in our context, minor means something else. I'm a Pirates fan. When someone gets sent down to the minors, it is not a promotion. Uh, we think of minor as meaning less than. But the minor prophets, the book of the twelve, are deep and rich. They're just short compared to Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. If you'll go with me to Hosea chapter 11, the speaker is the Lord. God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. God keeps calling even though they do not respond. Verse 3, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to the cheek. I bent down to them and fed them. Powerful, powerful, loving language that God uses toward God's people, toward the people Israel. And for that matter, there are plenty of texts on the right-hand side of the Bible where if we're looking for it, we can find mention of the wrath of God. In Matthew chapter 10, for example, 
Matthew chapter 10, beginning with verse 34. Jesus says, Don't think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And Jesus goes on to say, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Jesus recognizes that his message will be a cause of division and will provide occasions for violence. In the book of Revelation, to which we'll be turning later in worship, in Revelation 16, there are bowls of wrath, bowls full of wrath poured out on the earth. In other words, we can't avoid this idea by avoiding the Old Testament. That doesn't solve our problem. But I want to suggest that Looking carefully at some of those disturbing texts can begin to show us something important about who God is and what God is up to in the world. One book that I have been working with recently is the little book of Nahum. Just finished a commentary on Nahum through Malachi. Nahum comes right after Micah and right before Habakkuk in your Old Testament, toward the back. As I was trying to write about the book of Nahum as Christian scripture, I have to confess, friends, I really ran into a wall. I thought, what the dickens can you say? This is horrible, horrible stuff. Chapter 3, describing the fall of the city of Nineveh. Ah, city of bloodshed, utterly deceitful, full of booty, no end to the plunder, the crack of whip, rumble of wheel, galloping horse, bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, piles of dead, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Nahum delights in the fall of Nineveh. and describes its fall in gloating and ugly language. Now, we can understand where that's coming from. Nineveh had been the capital of Assyria, a terrible and oppressive foreign power. And the Assyrians had abused and torn at the people of Judah for generations, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, was totally destroyed by the Assyrians. So we can understand where this anger and pain is coming from. But we also find in the book of Nineveh ways to understand what is to follow, that call that harsh, negative, condemnatory language into question. 
The book of Nahum begins with a psalm. Nahum chapter 1. This psalm describes God as a warrior. Common language in the ancient world, but particularly in the Hebrew Bible. God as the warrior who triumphs over God's enemies. But the text also says this. Look at verse 3. Nahum 1 verse 3. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Starting out this way, Nahum makes clear, the book of Nahum makes clear, that the descriptions of the violence visited on Nineveh later are not a result of God losing control, of God losing God's temper. They are the end of a careful, measured, just response. God's justice is upheld here. And what's more, in this first chapter, something else is said. Whoa, is that me? Yeesh. Okay. I don't know what I just did. <laughs> Whatever it was, I'll try not to do it again. <laughs> Nahum also says, or the book of Nahum, here in the first chapter, something we don't hear in those violent chapters that follow, and that is that God takes responsibility not only for judging Nineveh, but for the power that the Assyrians had afflicted Israel with before. Though I have afflicted you, verse 12, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break off his yoke from you and snap the bonds that bind you. This is an idea that the prophets lift up elsewhere. Hosea talks about this. Amos talks about this. The idea that God can use a foreign power to judge and humble God's own people particularly when God's own people are proven unjust and oppressive and cruel. Another thing to note before we leave Nahum is that right after the book of Nahum comes the little book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk has become one of my favorite books in Scripture. In Habakkuk, this prophet, unlike Nahum, is not altogether clear on what God is up to in the world. Nahum is absolutely confident that God is drawing God's sword to destroy Nineveh. God's action in history is absolutely clear to Nahum. But Habakkuk opens with these words. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? 
or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble, destruction and violence are before me? Strife and contention arise so the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Judgment comes forth perverted. Verse 13, your eyes are too pure to behold evil. You cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? Reading through the book of the Twelve, going from Nahum immediately to Habakkuk, That tension hits us. And I think that tension is part of the point of the story. Part of the point that is being made in scripture, friends. It's not so much that we are given answers all the time. Sometimes we're given questions. And sometimes we're invited to ask Questions, to enter into a conversation with the God of Scripture. This is one of those places where we can hear Scripture talking, where we overhear a conversation between Nahum and Habakkuk. Nahum saying, well, the answer is very clear. God punishes the wicked. God rewards the faithful. Habakkuk says, no. I don't always see that. That's not altogether clear to me. What Habakkuk comes around to say, if you go with me to the very last verses of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and following. Just a word about Habakkuk's historical situation, by the way. Habakkuk is writing at the time when Babylon is just emerging as a world power and starting to move into Judah. Ultimately, by 587 BC, the Babylonians are going to destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and exile huge chunks of the population to Babylon. Habakkuk sees it coming. And hence his wrestling, hence his fears. But here is where Habakkuk comes down. Though the fig tree does not blossom, and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the field yields no food, though the flock is cut off, from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. Oh, friends, there's a glorious image here. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. This is something I think only country people can understand. 
Have you ever seen a deer make a, make a way through a thicket where you would bet there was no way through? Or you can watch deer or mountain goats in particular mount up slopes that you would bet there is no way up that slope. But somehow the feet of the deer find a way. Habakkuk says, oh God, I don't see any way out of this. I don't see any path. I don't see any way forward. Give me feet like a deer so that I can find a path where there is no path, so that I can find a way where there is no way. And he says, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. Habakkuk says, I I don't always understand what's going on. I can't see God's way clearly, but I trust that God is present. And so, though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold, yet I will rejoice. So I just threw this off, didn't Ah. Uh. <laughs> Yet I will rejoice. I can't do anything about my circumstances. Habakkuk says, not always. There are things about my circumstances I can't change. I can't affect how I choose to respond to my circumstances. And Habakkuk says, I will rejoice. I want to suggest, friends, that the violence in Nahum The violence in Nahum is bracketed by these words that call into question the idea that God is bloodthirsty or violent, that invite us to enter into this conversation, this ancient search for meaning. So that's one. The Old Testament God is wrathful and violent. A second reason I think that we often do not turn to the Old Testament, and I hear this one a lot, is the Old Testament is law. The New Testament is grace. The Old Testament, by this reading, becomes uh, not scripture, but a kind of preface to scripture. And our Bible really only begins with the uniquely Christian scriptures of the New Testament. Friends, this misunderstanding of the Bible derives not just from a misreading of the Old Testament, but a misreading of the New as well. Particularly the letters of Paul. Oftentimes, Paul opposes legalism to faith. Paul opposes legalism to faith. We hear him doing this in Romans chapter 4. If you want to go there with me, in Romans chapter 4. Romans comes right after Acts, by the way. 
Paul says, beginning here in verse 13, the promise he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is to the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. Neither is there violation. Paul says, <coughs> what came first? The law or the promise? Paul says, well, the promise came first. Abraham lived before Moses. The promise given to Abraham was not a promise based on the law, but a promise revealed before the law, Paul is concerned that anyone think that we can somehow earn or deserve a right relationship with God. The thing is, friends, that's what we find on the left-hand side of the Bible, too. The law, the Torah in the Old Testament, was never understood as a checklist of things that we must do in order to be acceptable to God. The law was understood as a gift given by God to enable us to respond to the graciousness that God had already showed. Sacrifices in ancient Israel weren't an attempt to earn God's favor. They were a response to the grace that God had already showed. So even in the Old Testament, while, yes, there are those who misunderstand and who take the law as a kind of precondition or a way to earn God's favor, that certainly is not the perception of the whole of Scripture. And once again, I want to take you to one of those short prophetic books toward the end of the Old Testament, the book of Micah. We were just at Habakkuk and Nahum. Micah comes right before Nahum. This is in Micah chapter 6. Micah says, With what shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? What does God want? What does God want? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? This is chapter 6, verses 6 and following, excuse me. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn? For my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul, is that what God wants? 
And then Micah answers his own question. He's told you. He's told you, mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord want? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice? To do justice. No checklist, no rules, no law. Just be just. Do justice. Love and hear Here, the translation is intriguing. Nearly every translation renders this as something like to love kindness or to love mercy. And that catches a bit of it. But the Hebrew word is chasev. And it probably is a good thing that, oh man, I'm I'm sorry if I spat on you. Uh, (laughs) The the Hebrew letter chait is not a letter we have, or a sound that we have in English. Uh, You can't really pronounce chesed without spitting on the person in front of you. Uh, Chesed is a word which means love, but there is nothing hearts and flowers, nothing uh, lacy and romantic about it. Uh, Chesed means commitment. It means commitment. Chesed is used in treaty language for the loyalty and commitment that the parties of a covenant owe to one another. So chesed means, uh, sometimes the New Revised Standard translates it as steadfast love. Steadfast love. Commitment. Covenant Loyalty, love, commitment, be committed, be devoted to the divine. That's what God wants. And walk humbly with your God. One of the rabbis whose teachings are remembered in the Talmud, the compendium of rabbinic tradition, Rabbi Simlai says that there are 612 commandments in Scripture. 612. But that in a few places, that gets boiled down. <laughs> he says, Micah has it in three. <laughs> Micah has it in three. Do justice, love mercy, love chesed, be committed, walk humbly with your God. That is what God desires. So friends, I'm persuaded that grace is the beating heart of the whole of Scripture. That grace doesn't just show up in the New Testament. That grace is the continual witness of who God is and how God relates to God's people. Which brings us finally to the third reason that people are sometimes reluctant to turn to the left-hand side of the Bible. And that is that the Old Testament is weird. (laughs) 
It is strange. And that is true. That is unquestionably and undeniably true. The Hebrew Bible is very strange, in part because it is very old. <coughs> and interesting thing upon which to reflect is that our New Testament, from the youngest book in our New Testament, which is probably 1 Thessalonians, to the, uh, the oldest book, to the youngest book, which is probably 2 Peter, there is barely a hundred years. The New Testament, all the books of the New Testament came together over the span of about a century. The Hebrew Bible spans a thousand years. And we find here, over generations of time, people wrestling with trying to understand who God is and what God is up to in the world and finding meaning and expressing meaning in ways that are quite distant from our own experience. <laughs> I... Uh, just finished a commentary on Nahum through Malachi. I also have a commentary on Chronicles and a commentary on the book of Ezekiel. And what those books all have in common is that they are weird. Uh, I've had... You ever hear someone say, well, you know, I, I like fish, but I don't like fishy fish. You know, I... I I, I like fish, but I don't like the fishy fish. Well, I like fishy fish. <laughs> I like the Old testament parts of the Old Testament. And Ezekiel is an excellent example. This is a spectacularly weird book, filled with visions in which the prophet who was a priest, or was destined to be a priest. He came out of a priestly family. But he was exiled to Babylon before his priestly education had been completed. And as the book of Ezekiel begins, he is 30 years old. 30 is the year when priests began serving as priests. So in the year when, had he been in Jerusalem, Ezekiel would have for the first time stood before a congregation and led them in the ancient worship of Israel's temple. He can't do it. He will never do it. He will live out his life as an exile in a refugee camp by an irrigation ditch in Babylon. So, in the year when Ezekiel would have, had he been in Jerusalem, come into God's presence, in the temple, God instead comes to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4, As I looked, a stormy wind came out of the north, a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. It's a thunderstorm. 
a massive thunderstorm. But as the storm approaches, Ezekiel suddenly realizes that this is no ordinary storm. And he suddenly realizes that he is not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> he is no longer standing on terra firma. He has entered another reality. He sees in the midst of the storm something gleaming like amber. He sees four living creatures who explode terrestrial biology. Nothing like these creatures could possibly live on this earth, which is exactly the point. They have four faces looking in four directions. Four wings so that they can move in any direction without turning. And then Ezekiel realizes that these creatures are, are, are the honor guard of a presence above them. And here, reading it in English is difficult. Reading it in Hebrew is more difficult still it is like listening to someone stutter. Ezekiel is groping for words, trying to find language. Above the, the dome over their heads, there was something like a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the, the likeness of a throne was something that seemed like a human form, Upward from what appeared like the loins, I saw something like gleaming amber, something that looked like fire enclosed all around, something like solid fire. And downward from what looked like the loins, I saw something that looked like fire, and there was a splendor all around like the bow in a cloud on a rainy day. Such was the appearance of the splendor all around. This was the appearance of the likeness of the Kavod Avonai. Kavod in Hebrew conveys a sense of weight, a sense of nearly tangible presence. The typical translation is the glory, the glory. It is the glory, the kavod, that is manifest in the temple, in the holy place, in sacred places. And here Ezekiel is in a refugee camp by an irrigation ditch. And God comes to be with him where he is. How could this possibly be? How could this possibly be? How could God in God's full glory manifest God's self here? Well, you know the song? The African-American spiritual, and we see it earlier in this chapter. Ezekiel saw a wheel. Yeah. In addition to the four creatures, there are four wheels. And the wheels explode terrestrial physics the way the creatures explode biology. Um, they're structured like, like a wheel 
inside a wheel. They can turn in any direction. And again, the point is supreme freedom of movement. For Ezekiel, what it means is that God's throne has wheels. The presence is portable. God can manifest God's self in God's full glory wherever God chooses to do so. And God has chosen to come to Ezekiel. Now, there are a lot of texts, a lot of familiar texts, that speak to this truth. The idea of God being with us, of God's presence in our midst. But I want to suggest that when we hear it, in this strange language, this unfamiliar language, it's like hearing it brand new. Hearing it in a different key. Catching hold of something that we may not have caught hold of before. And that, I think, is, for me, one of the most important reasons to read texts that are not familiar to us. And to wrestle with passages in particular from the left-hand side of the Bible. It's an opportunity for us to meet God in a way that we had not met God before. To see God through different eyes. And to hear God's praise sung in a different key, perhaps. And when that happens, we can hear the old story with new Years. Friends, uh, it is about 10, 10, 10, 11. I'm going to stop talking <laughs> and ask if you have any questions or comments or observations on anything that we've shared this morning, anything with which I can help you. Have I persuaded you to turn over to the left hand side of the Bible? I will. Well, praise the Lord. What, what questions do you have? I know you all. <laughs> you don't have Dr. Cool here every day, but. We don't have your background. Yeah, yeah. Um, one very important thing to do with your studying scripture realizing that Bible study is hard work. Bible study is hard work and it takes prayer and, and the willingness to wrestle with unfamiliar texts. There are resources you can draw on that can help you. I would urge you to find a good study Bible. There are a number out there. I use for my students... Um, a uh, study Bible that's prepared by uh, Harper Collins, the Harper Collins Study Bible, which is aimed at seminarians and 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 graduate students. So it's not always as easy to delve into, but there are some far more accessible study Bibles that are out there. Um, one in particular that comes to my mind: uh, there was a recent. Uh, English translation of scripture called the Common English Bible. 
the Common English Bible. I had some friends who were involved in that enterprise. What they decided to do was find a way to translate the Bible into uh, a more accessible language. Um, the New Revised Standard, which is the Bible I use with my seminary students, is aimed at a uh, college-age reading level. The New International Version is aimed at about a junior high reading level. The Common English Bible aims at about a 6th to 7th grade reading level. So in other words, what they've decided is, let's deliberately use familiar words. Let's deliberately use familiar language as often as we can. And I also know some friends who did the notes in the Common English Study Bible, so that's one that I could recommend. But also, lean on your pastor. Jordan has done some hard work through seminary and also recently with his D-Men, and he can make some recommendations for you too. Um, another thing that can be useful is to compare translations sometimes, um, although you need to be careful there because the temptation is to just take the translation I like. <laughs> and and uh, it, particularly if you don't have access to some resources that can help you to understand why translators make different kinds of choices. Um, there are some excellent reference resources that I can recommend to you as well. Uh, the HarperCollins Bible Dictionary and the HarperCollins Commentary are both one-volume books on the whole Bible, so you can get a quick and dirty access to a particularly difficult word or to what scholars are saying about a particular book in that way. And um, I'm sure uh, Jordan may have some other proposals. 